the house ready to have this many people in and refreshments and everything like that uh, involves quite a bit and people don't know it until they do it on a regular basis so thanks a lot Nancy and to each of you I know there's other places you could be tonight I appreciate your interest in being here uh, what we're going to talk about is in, in my judgment we're going to start talking about it the absolute most important thing that anybody can contemplate in this life I mean at least the possibility of it uh, one man in a statement that I read some years back uh, made the observation that any philosophy of life that did not deal with death was inadequate for the simple reason that that is the greatest reality that we all face. Uh, I don't, the hedonists can uh, hoop and holler all they want, and the people that are having all kinds of fun in any other area, but the bottom line is death. I mean, that's what bothered Solomon in Ecclesiastes. You know, he kept having fun, and he had all the ladies, and he had all the money, and he had everything he could get a hold of, and he kept saying that it's all vanity, it's a striving after nothing, because the bottom line was death. You know, and he said a, a live dog is better than a dead lion. But, and that kept bothering him, the fact that in the final analysis he had to die. If it turns out that uh, the Christianity is a farce, uh, you haven't lost anything but a little time if you're not already in, the, in that direction. And if it's true, it's the greatest piece of information that, that you can actually know. Um, what I've done over the years, I've specialized in the area of Christian evidences, Christian apologetics, and my own background probably has the most to do with this. I, my approach to Christianity was from the standpoint of unbelief, uh, initially. Uh, my father was not a believer, my mother was. He was an intellectual, she was not. Uh, emotionally, I was always turned on to Christianity. Christian people just seemed nice to me. Uh, uh, the people I met at church were nice. But intellectually, it just simply didn't answer questions that I had, and there are things that, because of my father, that others took for granted that I simply did not. And so there was always that element of doubt uh, in my mind. When I became a Christian, uh, after I had left high school, uh, it was as a result of meeting somebody uh, and studied in the field of Christian evidences. And it started a course of study that went on for a period of time on my part and led to my becoming a Christian. Uh, my father, who was a devout infidel, uh, some years after that became a Christian and died an elder in the church and, uh, and persuaded by nothing except uh, evidence itself. Uh, in reality, even though some people I know are brought up in a family where both their parents are Christian and they go into the church and become Christians and all, in reality, I personally do not believe that the human mind believes anything without some reservation unless there is adequate evidence behind it. Uh, you may say, or a person may say that they do, but you really don't know what you believe until your faith is put to the test. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an easy thing to go to church a couple times a week and sing a few songs and throw a few dollars in the collection plate. Uh, but really, that's not what Jesus asked, is it? I mean, those of you that are well familiar with what he said, this business of lose your life, deny yourself, pick up your cross, uh, put it all on the line, be willing to go to your death, don't be afraid of anybody that can kill the body, but uh, only be concerned about the one that, that has your eternal destiny. Uh, that you know, A lot stronger than simply the uh, few times uh, at service and, and not hitting anybody hit in the head during the week. And, there, and if practiced that way, maybe a lot more faith required. Um, 
I used to wonder why we had to walk by faith in the first place. I mean, why don't God just speak? I mean, if he wants me to believe, why not just speak? Why not, uh, why reserve all those miracles for those people in the first century? Let me see one, you know, and I, and then I, and the attitude was, I, I'd like to believe, but you know, I, I need something and, and why, you know, and just like even now, uh, the atheist will speak out very plainly and say, you know, if, if God is there, why limit himself to the realm of evidence? Why not just come out and do something overt that we can actually relate to? The first thing, and we'll deal with that question later on, I'd like to suggest to you is the very fact that you are a finite person necessitates a walk by faith. Um, everything you do is by faith. 99.9% of everything you believe is by faith. I was born in the year 1939 of necessity. If anything I believe that happened before then has to be by faith. I didn't see it with my own eyes. Uh, most of what's going on in the world right now, I'm not seeing, and near, neither are you. If I believe any of it, it will be by faith. Uh, in chemistry, I learned that H2O was water, H2O2 was hydrogen peroxide. I believe it. That can actually be proven in a physical, empirical way. But how many of you have ever proven that with the test tube and all? How many of you have ever taken uh, two parts? Uh, hydrogen in one part water and put it together and, and, and saw that you come out with water. Uh, you, your belief in it is based on testimony and your faith in somebody. Uh, you're a finite person. You don't have the time to do everything. You can't check everything out. You can't see it all. And so if, you're, if you decide to go to California tonight and you've never been there before, your entire drive will be going by faith. You're going to pick up a map and every step of the way you're walking by faith. And so I'm saying that God in us is not pulling a fast one on us in, in, in this thing of walking by faith and all. We're finite. And the very fact that we are finite necessitates that we, we believe things by on the basis of faith. And, and don't let the scientist with his doctor's degree kid you. 99.9% uh, .9 of everything he believes, he, he believes by faith. Uh, and, and, and he has to examine it from that standpoint. The question is... Uh, not can you believe something as concretely by faith as you can by sight, uh, but the question is um, how much evidence does it take to cause you uh, to believe something as conc concretely in your mind as if you saw it with your own eyes. Uh, we all have confidence in our intellectual abilities. Now here's what God has done, and keep in mind that I'm assuming God here because with our audience tonight we're assuming a a theistic position. We haven't proven anything there. But uh, God made us with the intellectual capacity to evaluate information and to come to a conclusion. And, and we understand this. Uh, every day in our country, juries meet and they'll determine whether a man goes to the electric chair, the gas chamber, or life in prison, or set him free based on an event that they never saw. Uh, in fact, you, you wouldn't want them on the jury if, if they saw the event, the judge would disqualify them. And so every jury that meets considers evidence about an event that they have never seen with their own eyes, and they'll come to a conclusion. And many times they will send a person to their death or to a life imprisonment. In other words, evidence can be absolutely overwhelming. Now, tonight, we're not going to prove anything. We're going to give the starting of some evidence that eventually pursued to its conclusion can prove. Um, 
somebody has, you're on the jury, somebody has, has just been killed, you see, and so here is Joe Brown, they're saying that he did it. And one witness comes forth and says, I saw Joe Brown go into the building 15 minutes before the shots took place. Well, that doesn't prove he did it. And somebody else says, I saw him come out of the building five minutes after the shots took place. I still doesn't prove he did it, but it's interesting, you know, that he went in 15 minutes before and come out five minutes afterwards. And so the police are interested. You know, they don't they can't prove he did it. But they're interested in him. And so they they get him and, and as they they go into the room and they take their fingerprints and, and then they take his fingerprints and they find out that well his fingerprints were on the knob going in and the knob going out. Still didn't prove he, he did it, but it's getting very interesting. And then he's got powder burns on his hand. And then he happens to own the same type gun that the person was uh, killed with. Well, you can see that that the evidence can eventually mount, and notice, it, take any one piece of evidence, and it doesn't prove anything. Take any two pieces, and it won't prove. But the evidence can eventually become so absolutely conclusive that you're willing to say, beyond any doubt in your mind, he literally killed that person. And so we do it regularly. It can be that the more evidence, and the stronger the quality, it can reach that point uh, sometimes when people approach the Bible, they approach it in a, in a way maybe that's not fair to the Bible. They'll pull out a book like Ecclesiastes, and they'll say, here, prove this is inspired. Or they'll pull out a book like Mark or John and say, here, prove this. Or they'll pull out a few verses and say, hey, prove that. But we don't deal with it that way, just like <laughs> we don't deal with evidences and anything else. When we look at the Bible, we, we need to look at everything that's there and look at it within a, a certain setting. And so... Faith is something that comes about as a result of evidence. Now, I'm talking about intellectual belief right now. Even after you reach the point of intellectual belief, there has to be a decision that's made. And that's really what the Bible calls saving faith, uh, a decision to put your trust. Uh, you can believe something intellectually and still reject it. Uh, you can believe that smoking is harmful to your body and still continue to smoke. You can believe it's foolish to drink and drive and still do it. And so we're, we're convinced uh, tonight in our study only about one aspect, and that's intellectual. Not that that is it. Saving faith is a decision to trust, but I don't believe you make that honest decision to trust with all your heart until your mind is, is intellectually convinced. As the man said, it's, it's hard for the heart to rejoice when the mind has doubts. Uh, you know, I might tell you, you've, got a, you've just won a million dollars, that sounds great, but you're not going to rejoice until I give you a little bit of evidence. And the same is, or if I told Mark he had an oil well under this house, you know, he's just not going to grab hold of that. I'm going to have to give him some evidence before he has somebody come in here and tear his house up and pays to have that, that hold up. And so the faith is itself based on evidence. The stronger the evidence, uh, the stronger the point until you can reach it where you believe without any doubt, or you can reach a point where you believe with an element of, element of doubt. It depends on the faith itself. Now, for those people that say they just believe, it's, it, it, there's a word for it. It's called fideism. And this is the person that, uh, why do you believe the Bible? I just believe the Bible. You know, I just, you just got to have faith. And so, well, why do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? I believe in it. You know, well, I've got the same thing you've got, and I just decided to believe in it. Well, that's fine, you know, you can, you can just make an affirmation, 
But number one, that doesn't prove anything to the other fellow. You know, if you're trying to make a Christian out of me, that's not going to prove anything to me, the fact that you say that you have faith in Jesus. Not only that, an, an affirmation can have doubt put into mind by a stronger affirmation. Um, I walk out of the house, and my wife and I get in the car, and she says, you know, did, did you turn the coffee pot off and unplug the iron? And, and you know, and I give everything the once over, and I say, yes, you know. Are you sure you pull the cup, uh, turn the coffee pot off and unplug the arm? And if, if I meticulously went over everything point by point, I'll say yes. You know, I'm sure I pulled it out, etc. But if I kind of half-heartedly went through it as I as go through, she can put doubt in my mind. And I don't know about you, but any number of times I've come right back in the house and checked it. And sure enough, it was unplugged and turned off. But she or somebody could put enough doubt in my mind that I come back in here. So I'm saying if faith is based on just an affirmation, somebody can come along equally strong with their affirmation and, and put doubt in your mind on uh, whatever it is you believe. The, the only thing you really hold on to and take to the grave and smile, and smile at the death angel is, is something that you're convinced of in your mind intellectually. Now, a few more points along that line when we get into the the subject we're going to look at tonight. Somebody studious in the Bible, tell me one person who believed in Jesus because he claimed to be the Son of God, or believed in him just because of his outstanding teaching, or believed in him because of his great life. Name me one person who came to believe in Jesus because of his life, and his teaching, and his claim. One person in the New Testament that heard him teach, uh, heard the claim, followed him around and examined that life, and came to believe that he was literally, man, this is strong, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the creator of the universe, going to judge you? Who believed that? It wasn't a one of them. Wasn't one of them. We talk about doubting Thomas. I'll tell you, there was eleven doubting Thomases there. And then Judas has already flown the coop. There wasn't a, when Jesus said he was going to be raised from the dead. There wasn't a single one of the apostles who believed him. When the women, the women went to the tomb after resting on the Sabbath to anoint the body and prepare it for its burial, they thought he was dead. They didn't expect him to come out of there. And when, when the grave was empty, they went back and told the apostles, and they scoffed at them. They actually mocked at them, uh, these crazy women. By the way, you'd have to appreciate the Jewish thinking of that day. Uh, the woman didn't have the testimony of a slave. Uh, her, she couldn't even give testimony in court in that day. The woman's live movement would have a ball with that situation. Christianity, by the way, is what changed that situation. But she didn't. Her woman, had, uh, that was interesting in the Gospels, the first ones to acknowledge him. And in their culture, uh, a woman wasn't fit to be a, a witness. You know, it's just you, you may as well call on a child. And so they come back and they scoffed at the woman, made fun of them. And they didn't believe there wasn't a single solitary one of them that believed until they saw it with their own eyes. Not a single one of them. Uh, Paul, devout, studious in the law of Moses, devout Pharisee, extremely intelligent, well-studied, 
Listen to Stephen preach a great sermon and held the garments while they stoned him to death to shut him up. Belief is based on evidence. In our culture, too many don't appreciate that because they were brought up in a home where mother and father and aunts and uncles and everybody around believed. And after all, uh, the lifestyle of Christianity can be very appealing and, 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 and things sound right. It's definitely logical. And so they buy into this. But the problem now is for Christians, uh, Christians are not converting a whole lot in, in the United States right now. We're losing ground. And the reason is that we're trying to convert people that are not there. We're, we're trying to still convert people who already read the, believe the Bible. And the biggest percentage of our society does not believe the Bible is inspired by God. And so consequently, the gospel meetings are held and nobody's baptized. Uh, most of the churches in Nashville are smaller now than they were 10 years back. Uh, most of the churches in all the rural counties are smaller now than they were, despite the population going up. And so there, there is, there is a, and one of the reasons is that our young people are going through the school system. I'm a principal in a K through eight school. Our textbooks teach organic evolution from the word go. Uh, God is not even mentioned. Genesis is a myth. All of this can be countered only on the basis of a teacher who happens to be there that is a Christian. Uh, all the way through high school, that uh, the books are written by secular humanists. Uh, the, the Christian has had very little impact in them, and this is in, and so our whole society is changing. Okay, we're going to look at the uh, what manner in which. The New Testament is approached as a document to, to gain information from. And we're going to approach the New Testament tonight. You can do the same thing with the Old Testament. Uh, we're just concerned with the New Testament tonight. Um, we're going to approach it from the standpoint that we really don't know whether or not it's inspired or not. It's just a piece of material that's there. Whenever uh, historians examine any historical work, they examine it with two criteria that they identify as higher criticism and lower criticism. I use this terminology because that's their terminology. And if you do much reading in, in theology or, or various commentaries, religious articles and all, uh, you'll regularly come in contact with those two words, higher criticism and lower criticism. The criticism is valid. It's, it's a valid way to study any historical work. And the Bible has been gone over with a fine-tooth comb by the higher and lower critics. Higher criticism is involved in the authorship of a piece of material. Uh, who wrote it? Uh, if there was no one individual responsible, what school, what group of people was responsible? Where did it, where did it originate? Uh, that's, that's one thing that higher criticism is, is concerned with. Uh, and so they, they'll take a document and go all the way back through the years and, and the earliest people that received that, who did they give credit to? Uh, what was the evidence that they based that on? Where was it initially written? Uh, higher criticism is concerned with historical facts. Uh, how much in this document can be correlated with other historical facts by other scholars who wrote at the same time? In other words, is the material in the New Testament just unique to the New Testament? Uh, uh, did the Roman historians have anything to say about Pilate? Did the Jewish historians have anything to say about Pilate? 
Did the Roman or historians have anything to say about uh, the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas? Uh, or did the Jewish writers have anything to say about them? Uh, what about the crucifixion of Christ? Did the historians from Rome or Jew the Jewish historians, did they have anything, anything to say about that? And so the higher critic is concerned with other collaborating pieces of information, you know, that, that would deal with the, that same fact. The higher critic is also concerned with the language of any document. Languages are living. Um, we've got a, I've got two different translations of the Bible, of the Bible right here on the table. I'm sure that among you there'll be several others. Uh, the English language is living and changing. Uh, the people that have the King James 1611, and they say they you know they go by the old King James version. No, they don't. They couldn't read the original King James. What they have is the fifth or sixth revision of the King James. I've got, for example, the new King James right here. It's the sixth revision of the original King James. Uh, most people that have the King James have the fifth revision. The last revision was 1879, I believe, and then this is a recent uh, revision that's been made. Uh, if you can, how many of you here already have ever looked at anything from Chaucer in school? Have you, or can you remember it? Okay. I had a, an English, uh, you mentioned uh, more being at uh, Lipscomb, I had an English teacher at Lipscomb, and one of the things we had to do is read some material by Chaucer. And uh, Chaucer wrote about 1384. It's like reading far, it's English, but it was like a foreign language. I couldn't read a word of it. I wouldn't have known what was going on, except I went to class and, and he explained it. And, and it was interesting to me to, to start there with Chaucer and come on up through the King James and on up through the years and see how the, the English language has changed. We constantly are adding words, uh, deleting words, changing the spelling of, of words, and it's, it's going on constantly all the time. That's true with every language, okay? The higher critic, when they look at a document, they're very interested in the language it's written in. For example, if the New Testament manuscripts were written in Greek, they want to know, was it written in the Greek that people actually spoke in the first century? Uh, does it use the idioms, the poetic metaphors, uh, the spellings that people in the first century used? You know, this is going to become important in dating the material itself uh, or determining whether or not anything has been forged. And so the higher critic looks for the authorship. He looks at collaborating historical facts. He is interested in the language of the book itself in every way. Was it originally written in Greek? Uh, or was a lot of the New Testament written in Aramaic? By the way, the language that Jesus spoke was Aramaic. Uh, uh, the Hebrew, after the Babylonian captivity, had ceased to be speaking among the Jews. Only the Jewish scholars knew Hebrew. And the typical Jew of Jesus' day spoke Aramaic. That was the, that was the language. It's very close to Hebrew, but he spoke Aramaic. And there are a lot of top scholars that believe, for example, that Matthew was originally written in Aramaic and not, and not Greek. Well, the higher critic is interested in everything about the language. And then he's interested in the relationship of this total document to other sources. In other words, that, uh, what is written there, does it really fit into the culture as we know it? Uh, do they use the language in the way they do? Is the geography uh, accurate, you know? How does it fit in with all the other facts? Uh, how consistent is it with itself and all? And so the higher critic is concerned with the truthfulness of a document, okay? The truthfulness of the document itself. Now the law critic is not concerned with the truthfulness of the document. 
the lower critic is concerned with the document itself. Uh, do we have exactly what Paul wrote? If the higher critic determines that Paul wrote this particular letter, when did he write it? When exactly did he write it? And do we have exactly what Paul wrote? Almost 2,000 years have passed. Uh, how much has he been tampered with? How much has he been changed in the uh, transmission? Uh, uh, can we pick it up and, and, and be confident that we are reading exactly what Paul wrote at that particular time? And so the lower critic is concerned with the reconstruction of the original text and then the way that text has been transmitted down through the years. Okay, now, I put that at the bottom, 200,000 mistakes, no originals, to show you the importance of studying this from even those that are, are Christian and believe in all. Um, years back, my youngest brother was at Western Kentucky University, and he took a course there uh, in the New Testament, uh, taught by a, a very liberal scholar at State University, and the very first day, uh, the man told them that uh, there are over 200,000 mistakes uh, in the New Testament manuscripts and you don't have any originals. And he was telling the truth. There were 200,000 mistakes and you don't have any originals. Blew, blew my brother's mind, you know. And he called, they called my mother up and she, you know, and he was real disturbed on that. And of course that led to a, a study that I had with him. But he wasn't the only one. There have been any number of believers. By the way, uh, uh, approximately 50% of young people who leave home as believers who are active in a church and go to a state college, 50% of them have left the church by the time they come out of college, uh, and, say, and have now stepped over into the realm. We say, well, why are those crazy young people acting that way? Well, they don't tell mom and dad, I don't believe anymore, or I'm full of doubt, or anything like that, because they don't want to hurt their feelings, uh, they don't want to be branded as, as, as whatever. But they've had, at the very least it's happened, they've had a lot of doubt put in that mind. There's a lot of skepticism as, as a result of a lot of the information that they, they've come in contact with. That's a true statement. 200,000 mistakes and no originals, but we'll see what happens to, to that statement when you examine it a little more. Okay, the, in looking at what you have to uh, translate the New Testament into the English language, there are about 24,000 parts or complete manuscripts going back to about 250 A.D., okay? Nothing before 250 A.D. Now, a manuscript is a direct word-by-word -word copying of a piece of material, like you read in Colossians 4 and verse 16, where Paul writes to the Colossians, and he said, after you read this, copy it send it to the uh, Laodiceans, and then you receive the letter that I sent to the Laodiceans. They never send it to you. Well, the scribes you read about in the Bible, they didn't have copy machines. They didn't have typewriters. Everything was handwritten. And that's why the common people didn't have a copy of the Bible. Uh, and, and most common people didn't have books of, of any sort. Everything was hand, handwritten. And so it was in the synagogue, in the, in the buildings. The, the rich had it. Uh, can you imagine how much a Bible would cost if you had to pay somebody to copy that by hand? Uh, and and this, was, this was the same for them. So it's all hand copied. A manuscript is a direct word-by-word -word copying of the language it's written in. And we've got 
Among the Greek manuscripts, some 24,000 either parts or complete manuscripts that date back to 250 AD. All right, the first thing I'll say here, this on the surface, you might look at it and say, well, man, you, we can't go further than 250 AD with those manuscripts and all. Well, the first thing, before we even go further, there is no document in history that compares with this. Um, when I was in school, uh, I was in the Marine Corps taking a course in Okinawa at the University of Maryland, offered extension courses, and I took the course out of curiosity in philosophy, philosophy of religion. And in that course, I was asked to read, the religion really took a beating in that course, and, and among the things I was asked to read was The Republic by Plato. And the interesting thing to me was that this man got up, and he was an oriole, and was teaching a class, and after putting, you know, the Bible down in the way that he did, we just quoted from the Republic and studied it as such a grand work, and we just quoted what Socrates said, know thyself, and all that good stuff, as if it were just absolute fact. Well, the oldest manuscript of um, Socrates' works, of Plato, really Socrates didn't write anything. We just know from Socrates by way of Plato. The oldest manuscript comes 900 years about after Christ, about 1,200 years after the death of Plato. In other words, everything we know about what Plato wrote comes from manuscripts that are 1,200 years after his death. All right, that's true of all things in antiquity. Obviously, when you write things down, uh, if they're written on paper, uh, that's perishable. And it has to be copied and recopied and, and recopied. And so to take the New Testament and go back to 250 A.D., 1750 years ago that uh, this material would be, that's a long time. But we can go back to 250 A.D. Uh, with all these manuscripts. Now, there's about 9,000. And when I say that, I'm saying what we actually have. This number actually keeps going up. Uh, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence Demands a Verdict, uh, this year is about double from the first to the third edition, uh, just on the materials that we've discovered. There's about 9,000 versions. Now, a version is a translation into another language. And for example, the Cyrenic version is a translation from the uh, Greek into the Cyrenic or Aramaic language. We have about 9,000 versions that go all the way back to 150 A.D. The oldest copy of the extant copy of the New Testament is the Aramaic translation that goes back to 150 A.D. Uh, this is the language Jesus spoke in. The oldest complete copy of the New Testament goes back to about 150 A.D. All right, now, here's the versions and all. From that, we come on down to letters, and we have approximately now, this number has gone up also, but about 1,500 letters from the early church fathers, men like uh, Clement, who lived, uh, uh, some scholars think the latest date on him is in the 90s. I just read a recent scholar that put him quite a bit earlier in that as far as the writing. But anyway, uh, people like Clement and Polycarp and some of these individuals that were actually converted by the original apostles, Justin Martyr, and who did a lot of writing. We've got about 1,500 letters by these guys that go right into the first century. Now, these letters that go into the first century so extensively quote from the New Testament that the first time this was pointed out was in the past century by a lawyer by the name of Simon Greenleaf, who was also a theologian, that in looking over these 1,500 plus letters, he was able to find 
almost the entire New Testament except for about eight verses. In other words, all but about eight verses of the entire New Testament is quoted in these over 1,500 letters that go all the way back into the first century. Suffice it to say, now here's what we do when we translate. What this proves is the New Testament was completed in the first century, okay? The New Testament completed, and we're saying something now that you can say factually, not as a matter of theory. Uh, for years, in the age of rationalization in the past century, uh, scholars tried to take certain books of the New Testament and pull them up into the second and even into the third century because they said there had to be time for that kind of thinking to develop, you know, all the theology that was developed there. But now they can't do it. Uh, they, uh, the literally, factually, you can put it, in fact, there's a book that I just read recently called Redating the New Testament by a scholar out of England by the name of Robinson. Some of you may be familiar with the name F.F. Bruce. Uh, they're a top-notch scholar. Uh, Bruce would feel the same way. He believes every single book in the New Testament was written before 70 AD. Uh, and this, this is between uh, the crucifixion and the destruction of Jerusalem. Suffice it to say, that you can concretely put this document. Now you might say, why is that important, so important? It's important when we get into higher criticism again, because the acid test of any historical work is that it was published as refutable testimony. In other words, the acid test is the material was actually published among the people at a time when people were living who were involved in those events and who could challenge it. The difference between tradition and history is that tradition is something that has passed for several generations orally, and then it's put down on paper. Well, it may be true, but it's weak. It's weak. If it passes through mouths, several generations, and you put it down on paper, it may be true, it may not be true, we're just not willing to confidently say, and so it's a tradition. Historical facts are those bits of information that can actually go back to the time that they were published, and they were published when there were all kinds of people alive who were involved in the events, and they could challenge that. In other words, that was the New Testament published when all these Jews that rejected Jesus were alive, when Jews who had a part in crucifying were alive? Was it published when all of these people that were converted, those thousands in the first century, were still alive and their faith was being challenged in so many ways? Uh, was it published when, when uh, the people that Pilate was under were still alive? And the answer is yes. That, uh, this, is, this will dogmatically set that down. Now, when we translate the Bible, the New Testament here we're talking about, here's what we're going to use, the manuscripts. Because, see, they were direct word-by-word -word copying. We don't use the versions. We, we don't use this. We use this for a comparison standpoint. If we run into a little problem here, we're going back here and look at something that may be older or maybe back here. But what we're going to use in the translation is the, the manuscript itself. Now, in looking, I'll finish just this one sheet here and we'll go ahead and, and stop on this part. In looking at the manuscripts, we mentioned that uh, there were over 200,000 mistakes. And that's accurate. Actually, it would be more than that now because when they said 200,000, it's before we found a lot of other material. The dishonesty in that statement is those 200,000 mistakes, and be more than it now, are spread out over all of these thousands of manuscripts. It's not, there's no 200,000 mistakes. 
in any New Testament document or any manuscript. There's no thousand mistakes. They're spread out over all of these manuscripts. And so if you've got a manuscript where some scribe uh, left out a word or put in a synonym for that word or, or misspelled a word, and then 10 other people copied it in their manuscripts, there's 10 mistakes. One simple error and 10 mistakes, or maybe 50 mistakes as it goes on down. And so that's where that 200,000 plus, and you can see that from somebody, can you see the importance, if you're a believer here, of your young people studying this material under people who are believers, that you can, that, you know, facts are one thing, but the way you use the facts are something else, and you can pretty well make them say what you want to, and, and you can honestly say there's, there's well over 200,000, and you don't have the original manuscripts. But that's the way they are. They're spread out over that. Now, when the textual critic looks at these manuscripts, we'll just take our top manuscripts, and for the sake of simplicity, I'll just deal with the number 10. You lay these manuscripts, we'll say 10 of them, side by side, and what we find out is they're absolutely seven-eighths perfect. And that means that seven out of every eight words perfectly correlate, okay? But there's differences on one out of every eight words. Well, whenever you copy something, or if you type and look at something, you know that you don't do it perfectly. And you know that you can actually do it, type it, read it, reread it, and still have a mistake in it. Where you've misspelled a word, you, you've put an E instead of an I, or an I instead of an E, you've left a word out. In fact, uh, if, you're a, if you're a fast reader, uh, fast, proficient readers, uh, are actually uh, more apt to leave a word out than somebody that's not so proficient because their mind just simply takes, takes it all in at once. Uh, you don't read, John ran down the street. Well, that scribe didn't read that way either. Uh, and, and, and the better the scribe he was, the more he may have taken in in his mind. And so he looks at the material and he's copying it. And so that from 7 eighths to 15 sixteenths of the material, the only mistake that's made was a, a different letter, the dropping of a letter, the misspelling of a word, some very simple thing like that, or the leaving out of a word, or maybe putting in a synonym. Well, you can see if you've got 10 documents, number one, they're not all going to misspell the same word, and they're not going to leave the same word out. And not only that, but common sense, most of you didn't even have the other documents. Common sense, just like when you read the newspaper and you run into a misspelled word or a blank space or whatever, you don't have any problem filling it, filling it in. Suffice it to say that the textual critic gets it down to 15 sixteenths perfect without any problem whatsoever. Now, from 15 sixteenths to 999 out of 1,000 perfection, you have statements where maybe the fellow left out three or four words. Maybe he left out an entire sentence. Or he put in a synonym. Or he incorporated some note uh, into the text itself. Well, here again, when you're dealing with a plurality of manuscripts, that's no problem to fix. And so a textual critic, in fact, uh, years back when I've gone up and talked this with uh, high school and college students, I take a copy of one of the translations and purposely mess it up uh, and then have them uh, take it in and straighten it out. I've never had anybody yet. I can mess it up a lot worse than anything here and, and never found anybody yet that couldn't look at it with several copies and straighten out the mistakes and restore the original. 
By the time the textual critic gets through with it, here's the statement he makes, and I'm quoting here Westcott and Hort, who were responsible for the 1901 American Standard Version. The reason I use that is that even to this day, the 1901 American Standard Version has a reputation for being the most literally accurate of any of the translations. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons it didn't go over good is it had a reputation of being high on Greek but low on English. It, it just simply, it reads a little bit rough sometimes because it is so literal. But anyway, Westcott and Hort, two very outstanding Greek scholars, the outstanding Greek scholars would agree with that even today, made the statement that by the time the textual critic got through with the New Testament documents, that you could be absolutely positive of 999 out of every thousand words, or one half of one percent. In other words, what they're saying is that you can pick this up and you can be sure that this is accurate to the tune of one half, 99%, 99.5%, or that one word out of a thousand. Now, I noticed on this one here, I was showing Mark before the study, this is the New King James translation in their introduction. They go into this and explain the confidence that, uh, that you can actually be that sure of your document that, that they translated from now that it was accurate to the tune of 999 out of every thousand words. Now, all of the argument that takes place in the commentaries and among the scholars in textual criticism takes place on that one word in a thousand. And I'll now give you a few examples. The last eight verses in the Gospel according to Mark is not in the oldest manuscripts, okay? But the problem is, oh, you can see the manuscripts go back to 250. It's not in the very oldest manuscripts, but the problem is it's in versions that are older than the manuscripts. And so the scholars really debate that. And, and they will present an equally good argument on either side. The interesting thing is, though, that what is said in those last eight verses is duplicated in other passages. It doesn't contradict anything else. It really doesn't matter whether it's there or not. If it's there, fine. If it's not, you haven't lost, you haven't lost anything. Among these verses that are debated, there's not a one of them that contradicts anything else are they that you would lose if it was taken away. Another example is in Acts 8.37. If you read Acts 8.37 in the King James, where the eunuch confesses before his baptism, it's there. If you read it in the new, any of the new translation, Acts 8.37 will not be there. The reason is, it's not in the oldest versions, it's not in the oldest manuscripts. I don't believe personally it was there. I believe that the, that was their practice and some scribe actually thought he was helping the text out by incorporating what they did. And so you won't find it in any of the newer translations. But again, it doesn't affect anything. It, 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 the same thing happens there that happens in other places and is stated in other places. Now, there's other examples, but suffice it to say that when the lower critic gets through with the text, he's willing to say that, number one, that this document, the New Testament, was completed in the first century and published as refutable testimony. And number two, he's willing to say that it has been so accurately transmitted that we can take our various manuscripts and all, and we can get it accurate to the tune of 999 out of every thousand words. Now, neither of those statements can be made about any works in ancient history. Uh, the Bible stands unique there. There, there's absolutely no work in all of history that scholars would make that kind of statement. Josephus, for example, the great Jewish scholar of the first century, 
there, there's been all kinds of changes in that and embellishments in various ways, and, there's, and all the scholars know this. The reason that this is this way, we haven't proved that it's inspired, by the way. We haven't proved anything, really. The reason that it's this way is that the people that handled the New Testament believed it was written by men who were inspired by God. And so because they believed that, they meticulously handled it and copied it. The same thing happened with the Old Testament. So what we have proved, we've proved that we have historical documentation that is written at a time when it couldn't be refuted. We've proved it, it's been handled very accurately. And we have proved that the initial people that got those letters believed it was written by people that were inspired, okay? And then we have looked at what a higher critic will look at and study in this material. And so we'll take a break now, and then when we get back, we'll look at the higher critic and what he actually has to say about the documentation, the historical events, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection, and things like that that we have in the New Testament. Or critic is determined by how accurately a piece of material has been transmitted down through the centuries and then whether or not it has been put together as refutable testimony. And remember one thing to keep in your mind on any historical document, uh, any historian will tell you the acid test of any historical work is was it published as refutable testimony so that you can go back and, and check it out and that other people had an opportunity to refute it. All right, now the higher critic is concerned about the authorship, he's concerned about collaborating historical facts, he's concerned about the language, he's concerned about everything that is involved in determining whether or not the document is, is truthful or not. And so uh, a statement has been made, uh, that's the lower critic, the higher critic is like a detective now. He wants to go and examine and see can we deal with this statement and prove that it's true or false. Okay, when we go back with the New Testament, the first thing we find when we look at the language itself, it is written in the language of the first century. It's written in the Greek that was commonly spoken in that day, and by the way, the Greek was the most common language. Uh, people that spoke in Greek then was like English today. Even people whose native tongue was Aramaic, many of them spoke Greek. Uh, if their native tongue was Latin, many of them spoke Greek but it was the one that was common to all the scholars and the one that would be most known of all of them. And so we go back and we look at the document. It is written in the Greek language of that day. It's written in the, uh, the same, with the same idioms, uh, the same poetic metaphors, the same method of putting words together. And so we don't have any problem. We can, uh, we can put it right, right there in the first century from a language standpoint. When we look at the other scholars, we're looking at people like Josephus, who was a Jewish scholar. We're looking at people like Sidonicus. We're looking at people like Titus, a, a scholar who wrote, a Roman scholar who wrote in the first century, in fact, uh, one of the top scholars of the first century. We're looking at people like Pliny and Trajan. And from the early church fathers, we're looking at people like Justin Martyr, uh, Polycarp, uh, Clement, that I've already mentioned earlier that these are people that wrote documents and materials at this time. To give you an idea of some of the materials that we have, uh, in the writings of Josephus, we read about John the Baptist and the fact that he was a preacher of uh, calling people to repent. We read about his condemning Herod of, of his sin. 
And we read about him being put in prison, and we read about him being put to death, and that Herod even grieved over it and really did not want to take his life. That Herod looked on him as a righteous man. Josephus was not a Christian. He's a, a Jew that was actually a general in the war that Israel had with Rome between 66 and 70 AD. He surrendered to Rome. Uh, the name Flavius is a Roman name, the house of Flavius. And so he was really a Roman slave then as a Jewish general, and, and he had many privileges, and among that he was allowed to write. He was an outstanding scholar, and so he was simply turned loose, and he wrote uh, volumes of material dealing with the Jewish people. And in the process of dealing with that part of history, as a non-Christian and a Jewish scholar, uh, he writes about John the Baptist and his having his life taken in here, and actually goes into more detail than what you have in the Bible. Another example, in Acts, the 12th chapter, you have Herod addressing the people in the, in the book of Acts. And remember, the people there are identifying him as, as almost godlike, and it's described how he was all decked out. And then you read in the book of Acts that the angel of the Lord smote him, and that the worms ate his bowels out, and he died a very horrible death. And that's the statement in Acts. Josephus records the same event as a non-Christian, a, a Jewish scholar, and he records it in much more detail than what you have in the Bible. And he records how he was addressing the people, how they were, he was all decked out and all that pomp and the people were heaping all that praise on him. And then Josephus says he became violently ill and that he died a lingering death over and with a lot of suffering over a period of about five days. With uh, Pilate and the execution of Jesus, uh, we have the statement in, by the first century historian Titus that uh, Jesus was executed uh, in the days of Pontius Pilate. Uh, so at the command and in the days of Pontius Pilate, he was executed. Uh, keep in mind when it comes to looking at history at this time, so far as Christianity is concerned, from the Roman standpoint, Jesus is just a country preacher. And, and they really don't even get concerned about him any more than any other rabbi until all of this nonsense about an empty grave. And then you've got all these people running around the country telling people that he's, he's come forth from the dead and he's God, and, and they're, they're really causing disturbance. Now Rome becomes concerned, but they're not even concerned before then. And so we run into Jesus in Roman writings exactly when you would think we would, when he is executed because of these claims that he's made, and then... When we run into letters from people like Trajan and, and Pliny, uh, as these uh, high officials among uh, the Roman leaders confer back and forth about what to do about Christians. Because you see, Christianity was growing by leaps and bounds. It was eating up the Roman Empire. And so the statement comes back uh, from Trajan to Pliny, uh, Trajan the emperor, uh, telling him that uh, the test to give. He said, if they are true Christians, they will de not deny that Jesus is the Son of God, and they will not pay homage or worship the emperor. And so he was told that, uh, that what, tr what Pliny was doing, he was really telling Pliny that what you're doing is exactly right. If they will deny Jesus, and if they will pay homage to Caesar and, and offer their sacrifice and worship, then you can let them go. You know, they're really not Christians. But if they refuse to worship the emperor, and if they paid homage to Christ and claimed he was a son of God, then the death penalty was what was to take place. And so here we, we see from this historical document 
that obviously the Christians of that day were extremely zealous. And, and we noticed something about their belief structure. They believed so strongly that they were willing to go to their death. We also read in, uh, from the works of Titus concerning uh, Nero and his persecution of Christians. Uh, Nero came on the scene as Emperor of Rome in 54 AD. Uh, he was killed in 68 AD. The real persecution by Nero didn't start until about 64. When Paul writes 2 Timothy, and he says the time of my departure is at hand, and he's in prison, Paul has made his appeal all the way up to the emperor. This is the second time that Paul's uh, been in, in a jail system where he's made his appeal all the way through. Nero is in the business of killing all Christians that come before him. And so Paul knew what was going to happen. Uh, secular history records that Paul went to his death uh, by way of the guillotine. Uh, the historical part would be that he was killed. Uh, whether it was a guillotine or something else would be in the tradition realm. You, you couldn't be absolutely sure of that. But I'm saying that the record is, is there uh, in, in, say, Titus, uh, speaking of Nero, and he named some of the things that happened to the Christians in his day. Christians were literally burned at the stake. Nero lit his gardens with Christians burning at the stake. Uh, Christians were put into the arena and animals were turned loose on them. They put animal skins on the Christians and, and then would literally turn animals on them. All they had to do to escape all of that was deny the deity of Jesus and to pay homage and worship the emperor. Now, not only does this have, give verification to the severe persecution uh, that, that, you're, that is taking place in the New Testament of Christians. But you also see something that's very important. And that is that these people, keep in mind, these are the people that were eyewitnesses of those first facts, if they were there. And you can, your mind is taking it in that, hey, these people believe so strong that they were willing to go to their death. That doesn't prove it so. But it says something to your mind when hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people believe something so strong that they're willing to go to their death for it. Well, another document, this is a, a, a statement from a Sura Farm Serbian. Uh, the document's in the British Museum right now. The dating is about 73 uh, AD, and he's writing to his uh, son who's in jail. And his son is in jail because of his beliefs. And so he's trying to comfort his son. And this document now written in 73 in the British Museum. And what he's telling his son that if you're in the right, you will be vindicated in the long run. And he gives two examples. One, he goes back to Socrates, who lost his life. But then he said Socrates has been vindicated uh, in, in, his, in the various beliefs that he had concerning his life. The next example he gives, and keep in mind, this is a pagan, not a Christian. He mentions Jesus. And the next example he gives is Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, who was executed by the Jews. But then he was vindicated in that just as he had promised, their city and their temple was destroyed as vengeance. Well, it lets you know that a pagan scholar in 73 is aware of the fact that through the preaching that's gone on through Christians, that Jesus had promised the Jewish people that he was coming in judgment on Jerusalem. And that when he got through with the temple, there wouldn't be one stone left standing. And so apparently that message was being well presented. And so here is a pagan who's aware of the execution of Jesus. He's aware of the spread of Christianity. He's aware of the war between Israel and, 
and Rome and aware of the fact that just as Jesus had forecast that Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. Well, obviously, that for him to be this aware of all of this as a pagan, the Christians were doing a pretty thorough job of preaching that kind of thing. Okay, now, when we look at the Roman scholars, the Greek scholars, and the Jewish scholars, we find that in any area where they do touch on the New Testament, they touch without contradiction. In other words, you cannot go to a single solitary fact and say, hey, here is an absolute fact that we can document and, and it's recorded and, and collaborated and all, and then we can go over here and show it's in direct contradiction with the New Testament. You just can't do that. If, if it collaborates, it corresponds with what's there. All right, now, another thing we can do from these documents, in those areas where there is no cross-collaboration, where you do not have this particular event recorded or anything said about it in their documents. You can show that in the setting that you have it in the New Testament, that it is of such a nature that it could have happened. And what I mean by that is the culture is accurate. The names that are used are names that were used by people at that time and spelled in that way. The, the governors and people of authority that are mentioned are the ones that were in authority and at that, at that particular place. That the geography that's touched on is very accurate. If it involves their culture, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11th chapter, when Paul writes about the woman uh, and her head being covered and says she ought to have a veil over her head when she worships, everybody familiar with that in, in 1 Corinthians 11th chapter, that's a shame for a woman uh, to be uncovered. In the culture of that day, you can see it in the Muslims. If you watch TV and the news, the Muslim women. It was considered a disgrace for a woman to be in public uh, with her head uncovered. And, and in fact, uh, many of the Jewish women in Jerusalem had a veil that hung down completely over her face. And this was part of not something that was taught in the Bible, but it was part of the tradition and the custom of that day. So everything that Paul says there fits right in with the tradition, the custom, and the problem that the, the church was having over this particular thing. Every argument, every debate uh, that is recorded involves something about the culture and the setting, and it's of such a nature that you would expect an argument in that way. For example, all the debating about the Jewish things such as circumcision and things of that nature are things that you would actually anticipate based on your knowledge of the Jews and then all the Gentiles coming in. Uh, the debating between the Jews and the Gentiles and the feelings the Jew had for the Gentile, all of this that's recorded there perfectly fits the material that we have outside the New Testament. Okay, so what have we said there? Number one, that yes, there are other documents from the Greeks, uh, from the Jews, from the early church father, from Gnostic scholars of the first century that touch on these events. And that in any time where they touch on a particular event, there is correlation with an event that happens in, in the New Testament. And even in those events that they do not touch on, that we can look at the event, and after the higher critic has studied the culture and the language and the topography and the geography and all that's involved, he can say, yes, there, there's no reason why this could not have happened, that the writer is accurate, that there's, there's no way that this could even have been written except by somebody that was living there and involved at that time. For example, how would you like to have a job right now sitting down and writing a story about something that happened in New York City and deceiving a New Yorker? You see, and, and calling all your streets right 
naming people right, getting your addresses right, <coughs> using your English in the, in the correct way that they would use it, it'd be an impossible task. And, and that's, in a, yeah, that's where, in a country where you've got the library and all the help that you want, but you couldn't do it uh, and, and deceive uh, somebody in that, in that realm. Well, in the same way, these scholars are so in tune to the language and the culture and all that there is just simply no way that somebody can write something over here and so make it appear as if it come from this section here that they're going to deceive these people. They just simply don't do it. Uh, they are, they're, full of, uh, they're full of doubt, they're full of skepticism, they test every point, and they have the tools to test it in that realm. Now, having looked at those statements, here are a few things that we can note as we leave the, the New Testament. Here are some facts that all historical scholars will acknowledge. Okay, uh, we're not talking unbeliever and believer. Some facts from the New Testament, and we're specifically we're talking about the resurrection now. Number one, all scholars, atheist scholars, infidel scholars, agnostic scholars, Muslim scholars, Jewish scholars, Christian scholars, all scholars will acknowledge yes, Jesus lived. Okay, he lived and he walked and he lived in 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 that that period of time. Uh, we live in the year 1990 A.D., the Latin abbreviation of the year of our Lord, referring to the birth of Christ. All of mankind is thinking of time before and after the birth of that man. So yes, he lived. Number two, all will acknowledge that he went to his death, okay, that he was actually killed and he was executed at the time of Pontius Pilate and that he was executed by crucifixion. All will acknowledge that. The atheist scholar the infidel scholar, the agnostic scholar, the deist, whoever he is, all the scholars will acknowledge that. Number three, and this is very important, all scholars, atheist, infidel, Muslim, agnostic, deist, all of them will acknowledge that three days later that grave was empty. Okay, there's no debate. There's, there's not even the, the Jews who tried to overthrow Christianity never argued about the tomb. There never was even an argument in the Bible or in any other work over the empty tomb. Everybody says it was empty. The argument is, is how did it become empty? And that's the only, the only place the argument has ever been. His death, his burial, and the empty tomb are all there. They're established historical facts. The entire argument is, was he raised from the dead like the New Testament pictures him and like he claimed and the apostles claimed and all, or did something else happen? Remember from the New Testament that when it happened, anybody remember what did the, the Jews that rejected, what claim did they make right away on that event? The disciples stole the body away. And sure, that was the claim. The disciple, well, that's a possibility, isn't it? The disciples stole the body away. Well, they had, by the way, there's no, but the interesting thing is there's nobody that believes that today, including Jewish scholars. The, the reason is that at the, every, here's another fact that they all will acknowledge that at the time that Jesus was killed all of his followers were in disarray they were in despair they were down their champion had been defeated you see the, the Jewish concept of the Messiah was that he was going to live forever on this earth uh, remember Satan in John 12 and verse 34 when he told them what was going to happen he said Lord how can this happen to you the Messiah will live forever when he comes they thought there was going to be a general resurrection of all the prophets of the Old Testament, and the Messiah would live forever on this earth, and everybody else would live forever on this earth. That, that was what the Jew was looking forward to. That's why that Peter, on the one hand, was ready to fight, and then when Jesus wouldn't let him fight to save him, he denied him. 
that they, when, when it became apparent that Jesus was going to kill him, a crucified Christ was just simply not the Christ of Peter. So all the scholars will acknowledge that the disciples are in disarray, they're disappointed, they're in unbelief, and they're scared, and they're hiding. Well, then the question is, why in the world are they going to come and steal that body? And number two, how are they going to get the body out of that tomb and that, and that guard there on it? And then number three, all scholars will agree that 50 days after the event of the empty tomb, 50 days after, these same cowardly people, uh, Peter who denied him, the others who fled, uh, these same cowardly, disappointed, in disarray, skeptical individuals all of a sudden began to proclaim very boldly and very publicly that he's been raised from the dead. And within one generation's time, they're going to turn the Roman world upside down. And so here it goes throughout all of, all of Israel and, and all of the Roman world at, at that time. And you can't shut them up. You know, Peter, you didn't have any problem shutting him up before. All you had to do was scare him a little bit. But you can't shut him up now. You can throw Peter in jail. You can call him names. You can spit on him. You can do whatever you want to, but he won't shut up. And you can do anything you want to the others, and they won't shut up. So now the question becomes, what in the world changed these people? From a psychological standpoint, how do you get somebody to believe? Does a, does a dead body that you've swiped from a tomb cause this kind of belief? Do people that spent their life advocating truth and rightness and honesty and sincerity and godliness uh, produce a hoax, a willful hoax? Consequently, not even Jewish scholars hold to that view anymore. And there's, I'm not aware of any scholars among any group that hold to the view that the disciples stole the body because it's not psychologically possible in view of all the facts that we have. So now we're back to the point of how did this body, how did this tomb become empty? You know, that we, we've agreed the disciples didn't get it. We've agreed that it was empty. We've agreed that he was dead. We've agreed that he was put in there. And so now we, we look at it and we say, well, some guy says, well, I think the, the, the disciples wanted him to rise from the dead so bad that they hallucinated. Like Paul, he was on the road to uh, Damascus and, and he's been responsible for the death of all these Christians and his conscience is tearing him up and and he hallucinates and, and, and honestly believes that Jesus sees them. Well, the reason that they come up with that theory is because they will not deny the sincerity. By the way, there's no scholar today that will say that the apostles made up a lie. They all acknowledge, and this is a, will go down as a historical fact, that they'll all acknowledge that they were sincere. They didn't well believe they say that. Why are they saying that? People don't die for something that you, that, that you know you're wrong on. Uh, you, now, because you're willing to die for it, don't believe, don't prove you're right. And a lot of Muslims are willing to die for what they believe. They don't prove they're right. But it proves that you at least believe you're right. And so the, the fact that they were so willing to die and to suffer and to sacrifice showed that they at least believed that they were right. So then you've got to come to some explanation as how could they be so deceived. So then the unbelieving scholar says they were hallucinating, and they believed that so strong. But here's the problem with that, among others. When we go to the New Testament documents, the ones that were published as refutable testimony, uh, the ones that have been so accurately transmitted, the one that fit all the facts that we have, if, uh, if these guys said that we saw Jesus at midnight 
you know, one night, you know, we were, after the event happened, we were out at night and we were out on the water and we saw him, you think, well, maybe, you know, maybe they were mistaken. Maybe they did just want it that bad. They don't say that. Uh, in their documents, they write that they were full of unbelief. They rejected him. And they even refused the first testimonies. And then we find statements like Thomas, who, who says that uh, I won't believe unless I can put my hand where they put the spear in and put my hand where they drove the nails. And then we have the record of that. And then we have uh, the record of where he ate with them. That remember one time they saw him and said, hey, it's a, they didn't believe then. They said, it's a ghost. And he says, a ghost don't have flesh and bones. And, and so then they got together and they, they ate a meal together. And so the, John writes in his letter, things which our hands handled, that our eyes have seen, our ears heard, concern their word of life. In other words, they record that they experienced him in every way you could experience another human being, that they conversed with him, they touched him with their hands, uh, they, hugged, they hugged him, they ate meals with him, uh, they listened to him talk. In any way that they experienced him before the resurrection, they experienced him then. Well, those statements are too concrete. They're either lying or they're telling the truth. So that's what we got to deal with now. Were they lying or were they telling the truth? But if they're lying, the, the unbelieving scholar has already said, hey, these people are not lying. They're telling the truth. They're just deceived. Because people don't make up lies and go out and die for them. And these people are promoting honesty from the word go. So you're, you're left with a situation of a death, burial, and an empty tomb. How did it become empty? Well, I wasn't there. But I can nail those three down as historical facts on the basis of the, the higher critics and all the, all the scholarship that's involved in, in his historical study. I can also nail down that, that these disciples changed from a bunch of cowards to the bravest people that ever hit this world and were turning the world upside down, converting thousands of people, and, and somebody's got to explain how that kind of thing can happen. I also can note, as you, as in the higher critic is interested in this, he looks at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, compares it with itself, then he compares them one with the other. One of the first books and evidences was the Harmony of the Gospels, written about 160 A.D., which, by the way, we, they have the original copy of. And so he compares all the Gospels. He compares the writings. And the question becomes, how can these people, if this event is not so that they're all involved in, how can they be so unanimous on all of these minute factors involved in the story that they're telling? And then to complicate the matter, here we've got Paul, who was a devout unbeliever, who heard every argument that could be presented against Christianity. He's well studied in the law, and all of a sudden he makes a 180 degree about face, and now the higher critic comes to Paul and he said, yes, Paul was a Pharisee, Paul was a Jewish scholar, Paul was trying to stamp out Christianity, those are all historical facts, and yes, Paul made a 180 degree about face, he writes 13, maybe 14 letters of the New Testament. He's the number one reason for the spread of Christianity among the Gentiles. And the question becomes now, how do we explain the Apostle Paul? Then the higher critic looks at it from the standpoint of the New Testament constantly makes this claim that everything about Jesus fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament. But prophecy is not prophecy just because somebody claims it's prophecy. Uh, a lot of times, it, I know when I was first studying and Christians would talk with me, 
And they'd say, well, Isaiah said this, and look at that, it's fulfilled over here in the New Testament. I said, how, how do you know that Isaiah wrote that before it actually happened? Well, Isaiah wrote between 740 and 700 B.C. Well, how do you know that? You know, uh, Voltaire, an atheist, was so impressed with Isaiah, especially Isaiah 53, that he said if anybody could prove to him that it was actually written before the event, that he would acknowledge that this was a case of prophecy. So when it comes to prophecy, what the higher critic is concerned with is can you prove that the document was actually written before the event, and then can you prove that the event itself was historical? And, only, and then can you prove it's been accurately transmitted? And only when you prove that the event was written in advance, that the event was historical, and it's been accurately transmitted, have you proven prophecy and its fulfillment. Well, in this case, with all you can say we're not concerned with the Old Testament in this study tonight for time's sake, but what you can say on just the study of the New Testament document is that these thousands of Jews who studied the prophets in the Old Testament were persuaded that Jesus did fulfill them. And they were persuaded that those had been carried down to that point. And keep in mind that, that our, our purpose tonight is just with the New Testament. So by the time we leave the higher critic and the lower critic, you wind up in a, with a information that's of such a nature that this fellow here, fellow by the name of Irving Lenton, uh, a member of the United States Supreme Court in the 1940s, and a lawyer, uh, wrote a book, A Lawyer Examines the Bible. And on page 50 of this book, he makes the observation that of all of the events in history, none so substantiated by a variety of quality evidences as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Most of these books that I have here have one thing in common. They're written by people that were either formerly atheists or unbelievers who became Christians as a result of studying the evidences that, that are there and are ava available to anyone. But the evidence is, is very strong, and your faith, as you develop it, will depend, and I'm talking about not the type of faith that will allow you to sit in a church building or allows you to have confidence in God when you're in an air-conditioned building, you're healthy and everything like that. Uh, when your faith is tested is when, when, when you get on that deathbed, and I've gone with a lot of people right up to their death. When you, you get there on your deathbed, or when you're out here making decisions in life where doing what is right means you might lose a job or suffer consequences or not what you get what you want in some, in some way, that those are the areas of life where your faith are, are really put to the test. And when you, when you pray to God and, and believe or don't believe that, uh, that he's going to do anything about what you have to say, that is really when, when you find out what kind of faith uh, that, that you actually have. And I'm saying that it is possible for anybody, the evidence is there from an intellectual standpoint. But once we get the evidence, then what you do for it, and we didn't prove anything tonight. All we did was offer some evidence in a certain direction. And the evidence builds over a period of time. And I'll leave you with this to think about. Remember the way we introduced at the beginning? Why did God limit himself to the realm of evidence in the first place? I mean, obviously he doesn't have to. If he's there, he can speak right now. I mean, why, why have me reading a multitude of books and studying all these years, or you doing that, or anybody else, when he can just speak and wave a little fire in front of everybody right now? Anytime you limit anything to the realm of evidence, we've already noted that evidence can reach a point where it's 
absolutely conclusive. But something is required of you if you're going to be, believe something based on evidence. Number one, honesty is required. It, it doesn't take any degree of honesty on your part to believe that I'm standing here right now. You, you can be the most dishonest person in the county and, and still believe that I'm standing here. But if you're examining evidence, um, a nightline, a few nights back, any of you watch Nightline? Or the, uh, they had a man from the tobacco company. They was dealing with a new law that's been passed on cigarettes. In my judgment, the evidence uh, against tobacco and the damage it does to the body is just overwhelming. I don't have any doubt in my mind, not even a fraction of a doubt, concerning the, uh, the potential that goes up for a cancer of the lung and the mouth and, and heart disease. But it was interesting to me. This lawyer for the tobacco company was just arguing up a storm that nobody had proven anything yet. And, and by the way, their lawyers go to court and they defend themselves uh, that, that their product does not do that and that nothing has proved it and they constantly are defending and selling that. So obviously that they can, you can do what you want to with, with evidence. As if you, uh, when they talk about pollution, uh, those of us who are polluting in whatever area, uh, we, we find ways of having the evidence different than what they do. So when you're dealing with evidence, I'm saying you, you don't get the same conclusion uh, without there has to be honesty that's brought to bear on evidence. Next, there has to be a sense of rightness within you. Uh, remember the statement that Jesus made, uh, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Uh, I suggest to you that he wasn't looking for anybody that was hungry and thirsting after righteousness. No matter what their condition, the, the, Pharisees, the harlots and the publicans may have been in that condition, but they were hungering and thirsting after a better way. And so there's a, there has to be a desire within you for what is right. There has to be a desire to be honest. There has to be a, a willingness to be humble and admit that you're wrong anytime you made a particular statement. And so anytime you examine the evidence on anything, those qualities are required of the mind. And God has limited himself, according to the Bible, purposely to those individuals that would be willing to seek. Remember, Jesus said that his word would bear fruit in an honest and good heart. Those that would be willing to seek, those that would be honest, those that would desire what's right. And on the other hand, if, if the mind was not of that nature, he gives you every reason to walk away from it. Uh, just like those that it's recorded that saw miracles and said, hey, you do that by the power of the devil. You, you can think of an explanation for that also. Let me, real quickly, let you look at some books that are available in this realm. One I mentioned, A Lawyer Examines the Bible, Urban Lenton, member of the United States Supreme Court in the 1940s. Josh McDowell, uh, Baptist background with the Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, formal, former skeptic, this called Prophecy, Fact or Fiction, uh, Good Study and Prophecy of the Old Testament, Evidence that Demands a Verdict, and More Evidence that Demands a Verdict. If any of you are familiar with Documentary Hypothesis in the Old Testament, uh, McDowell deals with that. Uh, John Clayton, or any of you familiar with the name John Clayton? Uh, former atheist, worked with Madeline O'Hara. Uh, now a devout Christian, lectures all over the country in the field of Christian apologetics. Uh, Kenny Barfield teaches in apologetics at a Christian school, uh, compares the Bible in this document with the, the Vedas and the Koran and the other uh, works that claim to be inspired also. Here's a book, Why Scientists 
believe, uh, our young people are being told that science rejects religion and the Bible. Here are scientists, all of which that have their doctor's degrees in science, that are giving their reasons for belief in God and belief in the Bible. Uh, this is an old one, but one of the best debates I've ever read. Alexander Campbell, uh, 1829, debated a fellow by the name of Owen, who was from Scotland, an atheist who was lecturing this country and refuting the Christian religion. Uh, they debated in Cincinnati in 1829, and uh, an outstanding debate. It's good because you see both sides. Here's the atheist argument, and here's the argument from the believer, and Campbell does an outstanding job from the Christian standpoint. This book here deals with the historical reliability of the Gospels. Can you be sure that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was written at that period of time, published, and you can read and be confident of the historical events therein? Have atheists proved there is no God? Thomas Warren did his doctor's dissertation at Vanderbilt. Uh, his doctor's dissertation was on this subject, and this is a section from it. He handles the number one atheist, the number one argument that atheists give against God. Is, is handled in, in that. He does a good job with it. Norman Geisler on Christian apologetics. I think, Mark, you're reading this one now, aren't you? Uh, this one, if you is one, you if you're getting if you're going to read any of this, I'd read it maybe a little, depend on your background a little bit later. He's pretty uh, deep to start with, but if you stick with him, uh, he's extremely good. And the reason he seems to be so deep is he assumes absolutely nothing. Uh, he goes after every single point in a meticulous way from the standpoint of proving it. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Some of you may have heard of him. Former atheist in England. Uh, became a very devout believer. Wrote a number of books in the field of Christian evidences. Uh, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Jesus. Gary Habermas. This deals with the information concerning Jesus among the secular and Jewish historians of the first century. In other words, not the material in the New Testament, but the information concerning Jesus and his life and all that we can document from the ancient and, and the spread of Christianity, the ancient and secular historians. There are a number of works. Uh, one of the great things about uh, the strength of, of atheism in our country now, and, and there, are, there are things that are good in the school, is they're causing a lot of Christians to study in this area. And there's a, there's a lot of very good materials put out. Keep in mind that everybody that became a Christian in the first century became a Christian hearing evidence. And remember the, the sermon uh, on Pentecost? Everybody take your mind to Acts 2, remember Pentecost? What, what did he preach on? He Half his sermon is quoting Old Testament prophecy, showing that Jesus fulfilled that. Then he's claiming the eyewitness of the resurrection on the basis of all the apostles. There's a miraculous there. And after the people's mind had been overwhelmed by the evidence, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? But it was, it was a pure sermon on, on evidences for the proposition set forth. Okay. Are those books available in a, in a library or are they something that's uh, hard to get on? You can get them in Christian bookstores like Mere Christianity can be got in any Christian bookstore. Um, this ancient evidence for the life of Jesus uh, is the same thing. Any, uh, if they don't have it, they can get it for you. Um, Josh McDowell's works are in, are in all the Christian bookstores. Most of the Christian bookstores will have a section just on Christian apologetics. Uh, 
the Christian colleges will have them in their libraries. And then uh, now there are some of the older ones, like the debate with Campbell, that would be out of print, you know, right now. And there's a number of others out there. You know, they're not all equally good, but there's a lot of very good ones. In fact, I have I really haven't read any that I thought was bad. I've just read some that was better than others, and and some of them offer different types of information. Uh, a very good book that, uh, in fact, I just reread it not too long back. None of these diseases. If any of you heard of that book, Mark is Mark. You've read it, haven't you? You've read it. Outstanding book. Takes the health code of the law of the Old Testament. Goes back and, and gives you the the actual health practices of the people of that day and what their doctors believed and all. And then the question becomes, where did Moses get that health code? Uh, I mean, in a in a day when doctors killed more people than they saved, how did Moses give to the Jews? A system that you cannot improve on to this very day. I mean, just, you just simply cannot improve on that health system that he gave to the Jewish people. And he did it at a time when lockjaw was the number one killer in Egypt because of the way they handled uh, diseases. In fact, uh, most of, in all of antiquity believed that diseases was caused by demons. And so when you read about their, uh, the way they cured diseases, I know I used to wonder, why were they always using the excrement of animals? and uh, cow dung and things like that and wiping it into sores and, and calling, causing uh, lockjaw in the process. But what it was, they believed that all diseases were caused by demon possession. And so they thought that if they made that person so obstinate that the demons wouldn't like it and they'd leave. And so they would take manure and, and all kinds of uh, the urine from animals and they'd take their inner parts out and they'd grind it up and, and this was the top medical practice of the day at the time of Moses. And they would wipe that stuff into wounds and wipe it on the body, and they were killing people. They were coming down with lockjaw and died. The average life in Egypt at the time of Moses, the scholars say, was about 30 years. I mean, you did, you did good to get past the doctor in that time. Well, Moses comes out of all this, and he tells the people to bathe, and bathe in running water, and wash your clothes, and, and be clean, and and if somebody has a disease, get away from him. Practice quarantine and wash his house down. And don't let him come in among the people until you're sure that he's clean. Nobody's ever seen a germ before. Um, they, they had a health situation that we honestly cannot improve on at the present time. But that book, none of these diseases, it's one of those books now anybody would enjoy that. A high school student, college, anybody, it's one of them. If you pick it up, it's hard to put down. I mean, it's written in a very, very, very good way. He even brings up stuff like this happened in the last century, you know, like with, with George Washington and, the, and even up into the Civil War, the practices they had. You know, we know that those practices were wrong, but you can see that those concepts were handled in the Old Testament. Right. The uh, George Washington, for example, was bled to death. They believed that, uh, <clears throat> that when you were sick, the problem was in the blood, and so they put leeches on you to suck the blood out of you. And poor old George was literally bled to death by his doctors. Well, this was a common way up to about 100 years ago of bleeding people to get the impurities out of their blood. Well, the, all the time you got the Old Testament just screaming out, the life of the flesh is in the blood. You would have never found a Jew bleeding anybody. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And so they, they didn't understand it. But that, that's, the, that's the way that it was. Um, when leprosy uh, was going wild through Europe in the past century, after the, the doctors had tried everything and failed, they went to the church 
And they thought they was willing to try anything. When you're down to the last resort, like in basketball, you throw up that prayer, they call it, you know, when you've tried everything else. So they went to the church. And so they went back to the health code of the law of Moses, and the end result was that they eradicated leprosy in Europe. Uh, the spread of various venereal diseases and all was handled by simply going back to see what the Bible had to say in, in those particular areas. And this is at a, at a time before all of medical science. Uh, this book here, why the Bible is number one. I'm just reading this one now. I bought this about two weeks ago. And uh, he's, he compares the Bible with all the other sacred literature, the writing of the Koran by the, 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 the Muslims, uh, the Hindu writings, the, the Vedas, all the, the literature that claims to be inspired. And he goes, into, he goes to these various documents and shows that they practiced health-wise the same things that everybody else did. And their priests and writers recommended the same thing. And it stands in stark contrast to the Bible that stood out completely from their generation. Uh, another thing he deals with is the fact that the, the various superstitions and myths and lies that people have believed through the years is advocated in all other religious books, but not in the Bible. That for some reason, it just they did not incorporate that. And again, there has to be some, his point is there has to be some explanation for it. But there's any number of good studies uh, that in, in any of these areas. Uh, prophecy itself is a fantastic study. Just, just the resurrection, going into it a lot more detail than what we did, is a good study. But the starting base, the starting point is higher and lower criticism. And that is how do you, you've got to have a document that you can trust and that you can prove it's written as refutable testimony, and then you go at it from that standpoint. And remember that everything tonight has been presented from the standpoint we've assumed God. That that's that's another another study is the existence of God and and then once you've got God what kind of God is he is he a personal God or are they are 